0: Hear the word of the Lord. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles by my joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. For he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you. But only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, and what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So, even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit was being refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you.
1: Thank you, Terry. That was great. That Bible tape I listened to has got a, the guy's got a much harsher voice. Yours is very pleasant to listen to. He's <laughs> scary sometimes. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all again today. And uh, sometimes I wish I was up there skiing with those guys, but uh, I've got things to do here today too. Um, Winter Olympics is coming up. I don't know if you're looking forward to it. Like I am, I love to watch it. I can't pronounce the name of the Russian city where it's supposed to be, but, but uh, I always love to see the skiing and, and the skaters. And just by coincidence this week, I suppose not coincidence, really my son Luke handed me an essay written by a former... Olympian ice skater. And it has some things here that were so fitting for the passes today. I've just got to read you a few paragraphs of it. His name is Paul Wiley, and he skated, he was one of three American skaters in the Calgary Games in 1988, figure skating. Let me read you a few of his words uh, The crowd of 20,000 is electric, and by extension, my mind attempts to contemplate the, the live worldwide television audience. I'm a figure skater a sophomore at Harvard, and for 15 years I have worked towards this competition. It is 1988, and I finally take the ice in Calgary, one of three American men competing in the Winter Olympics. The intensity of the focus is overwhelming. This is not a human-scale event, and yet I stand alone at center ice under the watchful, expectant gaze of the world. As the music starts, I move onto a long edge, hearing little but the sound of my blade rumbling across the ice. I notice that my nerves have caused my mouth to dry up such that my teeth stick to my upper lip. I understand that this is not a good sign of how I'm handling the stress. (laughs) I set up for the first jump in my program, but as soon as I'm in the air, I know something is terribly wrong. A flash. Later, my hand touches the ice. The blade will not hold. I start slipping, and now I realize it. I'm falling. All I hear as I collapse to the ice is the empathetic groan of what seems like a million voices. I, shrug- I struggle to get up, hustling to get to the next move, thoughts racing through my mind as I try to cover the disappointment. There is no way of erasing a fall from the judges' minds, nor can I jam the television transmissions to the living rooms of friends and family watching at home. This is live, and I have just blown it. Um, this has to do with our passage, because sometimes uh, the the harder we work or for all that we try to do well, sometimes things just go sour. And we have to learn to respond to that. I'll tell you the end of Paul's story at the end here. But uh, let's pray. Father, I want to thank You for Your Word today. And I pray that it would go out in spirit and in truth and that You'd help us to receive it and to respond to it. That You would translate these words into each of our hearts in the unique way they need to be applied and that You'd give us the courage to follow up on them with faith, trusting your goodness, and your enablement along the way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, and before I really dive into the passage, I need to review again a little bit of the background for you because it really is relevant. Paul had spent a year and a half initially in Corinth planting this church in a culture that was just ferociously pagan, rife with idolatry, and sexual promiscuity. Um, He leaves and moves on on different missionary journeys and he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians where he corrects some mistakes some ways that the church had gotten off track and reaffirms them in their love and in the centrality of the resurrection. And then he goes back for a visit, a personal visit with the church to strengthen their faith. But Paul calls this visit in chapter 2 of this book, he calls it his painful visit. Something went horribly wrong. We're not sure what exactly it was. Maybe Paul. Part of it might have been that he confronted the church with some of the things, some of the ways they'd gone off track, some of the sin that had kind of infiltrated the body. Maybe they didn't respond well to that. Also, there was the there had come to be these what they called super apostles, professional traveling Christian speakers, and they got paid big money. Paul didn't receive any money. They had everything worked out. They probably had great sound systems. I don't know, but. there perhaps had been a wedge that these professionals had driven between the Corinthian church and Paul. At any rate, things had completely unraveled. They had basically shut out Paul by the end of that visit, and he left in tears. Hmm. And it's out of that kind of concern and anxiety and really out of the rupture of that relationship that these words are penned here. But the striking thing to me is how human this all is. That's one of the miraculous things, the beautiful things about the Scriptures. They're about real life, not about some sanitized, idealized world of fairy tales um, where everyone gets along. The real world is this one, where people are hurt and where they hurt each other, where they stumble over each other. It's messy. But the Scriptures wade right into us, into those times with us. The Lord wades right into those times with us. And that gives us a little understanding about why Paul says what he does in verses 2 and 3. He says, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I don't say this to condemn you. I've said it before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Paul reminds them of his history. He had worked night and day, didn't demand pay, and he was there for their growth, for their nourishment in the faith. He wasn't there... To make a buck he wasn't there to make a name for himself or for his reputation he was in it for them that's what these words are all about but notice that inside of all this is that plea and we can hear paul's hurting heart in the middle of it he says make room for us in your hearts he said something similar back in chapter 6 verse 13 where he asked them to open their hearts to him what's this about it's a plea for them not to shut him out like they did before and I think maybe verse 4 gives us a little bit of a clue of what might have happened. He says in verse 4 there, he says, I have spoken to you with great frankness. Other translations talk about the confidence with which he was able to speak with him. Paul had invested his life in these people. He knew them well. He had, in some senses, won the right to speak into their lives. And so he, with his love and, and, and for their good, he spoke directly and frankly to them. And perhaps they didn't respond very well to that confrontation. Maybe they took offense in some way. Maybe Paul hit so close to home that they just couldn't help but kind of close the door to what he was trying to say. We're not sure, but Paul asked them to open up their hearts to make room for him. You ever experienced that? You ever had someone who was close to you? Sometimes it's our kids. Sometimes it's somebody else in our growth group. Sometimes it's someone we've just known forever and we know so well that we can speak into their lives, but... It doesn't go well. They turn on us. They shut us out. They, they can't hear it somehow. Hand goes up and you can only talk to the hand. There's nothing, nothing to be done. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have. And it's a sad. It's difficult. It's, it's really painful. Or maybe you, like I, have been on the other side. Someone who knows us well has come alongside to speak to us in love with the kind of frankness and directness that Paul talks about here. They know we need to hear something. But, as I have done, maybe you have too. You didn't want to hear it. You told them that. Maybe you blame somebody. Maybe you make some excuse. Maybe you just shut the door in their face somehow. But Paul's words today are for us in just those circumstances. Is there someone you and I are shutting out? Is there someone in our lives who loves us, who's earned the right to speak to us, to speak into our lives and be honest with us? My goodness, those are a blessing. There's too much just skating through life. Nobody ever challenges anybody. We have people who love us enough to challenge us. What a blessing. Are we making room for somebody like that in our hearts right now? We need to do that. Paul pleaded for it, and we need to make sure that we're not shutting anybody out who could come in and speak meaningfully to our hearts and to our lives. This idea of making room for others cuts the other way too. So my question for us is, are we making room in our lives that is giving time and energy and intentional effort to cultivating relationships such that we can be those who speak into others' lives as well, to help them along in the faith. We have to be able to play both those those, those roles. The passage exhorts us to be open on both sides, to be teachable and to be cultivating lives that we can speak into as well so that we can play that role. I suppose there's one other observation that's probably appropriate here When we share truth, it's a little bit like sowing seeds. Jesus made the connection himself. Um, Sometimes truth needs time to germinate. We may share something that's true, that's appropriate. We may even do it in all the right ways and still experience rejection. That doesn't mean that the truth is not going to have its effect. The Word doesn't come back empty. Seeds grow. Truth has power. Jesus' truth has power. And sometimes there's denial in the evening but responsive change by morning. And we just need to be patient with that process and not sort of give up when the soil seems initially hard or resistant. We need to give time for that germination. So Paul goes from there, and even as he makes that plea, he moves on to the way that God had comforted him in the midst of his struggles. And the struggles were significant that he had there in Macedonia. Lots of uh, controversy and conflict. Look at uh, verses 4 through 7 with me. Paul says, I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about uh, your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Let's not miss that promise that's woven into those verses. Okay? It's that God comforts the downcast. Paul opened the letter, uh, 2 Corinthians, with the same theme when he said God talked about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. This is a wonderful thing. We need to know that God offers us comfort. We need to know that He's in it with us and in it for us. He's not cold and distant. We may feel that way at times, but he's not that way. He has comfort to offer us. Paul talks about two ways here, two ways that he was comforted. The first was with the arrival of Titus. Even if Titus had not brought good news, Paul still would have enjoyed and been comforted by Titus' presence. They had that kind of a relationship where they could speak into each other's lives and their presence was a help to each other. Genesis tells us that it's not good for man to be alone and each of us needs alone time. We know that, but even so, it's not good for us to be alone. We need to be present for each other. That's part of what it means to be the body of Christ. We need to be with each other. That's what the body's about. A voice, not, a, not just a voicemail. A touch, not just a text. We may not have answers for people. Sometimes the hurts are so deep and confusing we don't have answers. But our presence does something. It can provide a kind of shelter so that the winds of struggle don't blow out the the flame of faith. Titus' very presence helped Paul in that way. The other thing that uh, was a source of comfort for Paul in this passage was the news that the Corinthians' faith was still strong, that their relationship with Paul was not decaying, but it was... Improving and healing. But I want to draw your attention to the actual, to the real language, because I think Paul's careful with it in verse 6. Notice how he says it. He says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. I think we have to be careful never to confuse the, the provision with the provider. Paul does not say that he needed Titus for comfort. God provided the comfort, and Titus was the means on this occasion. The point's a little subtle, but I think it's important. We can fall into difficulties when we seek people as comfort rather than God. God does use people to convey his comfort. He's happy to use us to convey his comfort. But let's make sure we're seeking and depending on God for the comfort and not for people. People can't sustain that kind of expectation. That's what 2 Corinthians is all about. We don't have that kind of adequacy. Only God does, and that should lead us into that dependence on God. And that's what Second Corinthians sort of is at pains to make clear. And likewise, um, we can be guilty of thinking that only a change of circumstances will bring comfort. That change may not come. Our work situation may continue to be an unpleasant struggle. The sickness may not respond to treatment. Paul's circumstances didn't change. He was still under a lot of stress and a lot of har- harassment in, in, in Macedonia. Things didn't clear up with the arrival of Titus or this good news. But he was comforted at seeing God at work in his friends' lives. And that's the greatest comfort of all, that God is at work. Sometimes the comfort comes because of the hardship, not in the elimination of it. We need to train our eyes to be, ex- be comforted by recognizing God's work. The main point is to make room for God as our genuine source of comfort, not to be dependent on a change of circumstances, not to be dependent on certain people to always come through for us. Not being dependent on feelings or events. God's ways are creative and sometimes unpredictable, but we can depend on Him to bring comfort and light, and we just need to make room for that and, and, and work with that in that way. Now we will move on to what I think is the center of the passage in verses uh, 8 through 11, where Paul talks about this letter, a letter we don't have, but a letter he wrote in the middle of some real struggles. Verse eight says, "Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What in indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Again, we see the human and humane side of the Scriptures. Paul talks about how, how he was hesitant to send this letter. He wasn't sure how it was going to come out. He didn't know how it would be received. He was worried that in trying to do good, he was going to mess it all up. I don't know about you, but I felt that way. You think you need to say something. It's appropriate to say something. You don't know. Haven't? You're scared about it. Maybe it's a letter you wrote. Maybe it's words that you have said or words that you're planning to say. But this Paul went through it. We go through it. It's part of the messiness of life. We have doubts about these things. But out of faith, Paul went ahead and sent this letter. And the response is really the heart of the text. Paul says the Corinthians responded with godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow. I think it's worthwhile to compare the two. First, let's talk about worldly sorrow. Paul says worldly sorrow leads to death. Not long ago, I was reading an article in Psychology Today magazine, secular magazine, and the psychologist went on just a rant about how guilt is the most damaging of human experiences. And, of course, he blamed pretty much every religion and faith in the world for producing or inventing this kind of guilt. And he just posited the idea that if this guilt didn't exist, everybody would be much happier, as though the guilt was just not real. And, of course, we have those who take this and run with it, and live life as though guilt did not exist, acting on the idea that there's no absolute right and wrong, so you can never really be wrong. They run over their own lives, and other lives cause lots of damage. But of course, that notion is wrong. Certainly we feel guilt sometimes when we shouldn't and when we don't need to, but real guilt exists because there's real right and wrong. And without a place to go with that guilt the sorrow that comes with it sprouts all kinds of problems that, that we see all around us. World's worldly sorrow brings bitterness. It just sits there and poisons us for years sometimes. Worldly sorrow takes away our hope. It leaves us with nothing but despair because there's nowhere to go with it. If you don't have anywhere to go with that sorrow, despair just settles over you and you wonder what, what's the point. You also see how it can infect people with a kind of cold... Cynicism, Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Who cares kind of an attitude. Yesterday was the march to the right to life. And it reminded me of, in my life I've seen sort of two different responses from women who have suffered the trauma and the tragedy of abortion. Those that have actually been drawn to Christ as a result of this pain understand and empathize with women who are caught in difficult circumstances, and they're the greatest help they have grace to bring to these women who are in these circumstances in a way that's beautiful that, that the rest of us can't. But then sometimes you see the others who didn't have godly sorrow, who did had nowhere to go, who didn't find where to go with that sorrow, and instead just became cold and cynical and become the advocates of the procedure and, and defiant with respect to rights about an abortion. Those are the two different kinds of sorrow there and the two different fruits of it. Worldly sorrow brings anger. It brings a desire for revenge. I got to know just recently a, a fellow named Tim Shantier. I don't know if anybody here knows him, but he's with New Tribes Missions. He works among the Yembi people in Papua New Guinea. And uh, he's worked there for 15 years, translating the scriptures, getting to know the people. And he told me that the tribe... Get a little difficulty for a while because the tribe has no word in its vocabulary for forgiveness. It doesn't even exist in their vocabulary. The tribe had this history of just cycle after cycle of one tribe executing revenge on the other tribe and back and forth, just revenge wars constantly. No notion of forgiveness. The team had to get together and create a word for forgiveness. It was kind of a combination word they had from, they pulled it from uh, the word for like find it and then grab it and then pull it out and throw it away. They put all these together to create a word for forgiveness. Sort of like what you do with a snake in your garden. You know, just get him out of there somehow. Um, but what a, what a beautiful thing when the, when the village came to see that this thing even existed. They didn't even know existed before. So their sorrow, their worldly sorrow, now a place to go for, uh, for redemption and for purpose. And that's what Paul's pointing to here with this idea of godly sorrow. That's the, what the beauty of life with Christ takes us, has a place for us to go he says, "Godly sorrow leads us to repentance." We know repentance as that idea of turning around, getting on the, the going the right way on the right road once again. But I think it's instructive to think about the word itself. The word is "metanoia," and it really li- literally means a change of mind, a change in the way of thinking. You see, in Genesis, we fell; our minds fell as well as everything else. Um, you see that when Adam and Eve, right after they eat the fruit, you know what they do to cover up, right? I think it's cartoon comedy the way, the way Moses puts it in here. They sow fig leaves to cover up. I mean, that's, that's silly. They think they've done a good thing, but this is a comical effort at covering up their shame. And of course, the next step is even sharper. They hide from God. The mind falls too. Paul talks a futility of thinking. Paul calls it a futility of thinking in Romans. Same is true for us. You know, we easily believe that we know better or that we know best. We quickly criticize those who, you know, put us in the crosshairs and tell us anything that we've done wrong. We quickly blame circumstances or other people for our errant, sinful ways. Which is why we need the Word and why we need mentors and why we need teachers. The life for us in Christ becomes one of course correction now. We wander off track. And we need to have our thinking about ourselves and about God and about others straightened out, corrected, clarified, sharpened. We need to make room for that truth in our lives so that we can change like seed sown on good soil. I'll be honest with you. I grew up with a pretty terrible temper. In Little League, I was a bat thrower. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. I'd strike out and look out. That became a tomahawk flying back towards the fence sometimes. got me in a lot of trouble. Coaches over the years that said, hey, you've got to get a handle on that, get a handle on that. I ignored them. Um, But then one day, God hit me right across the head with James 1.20. James 1.20 says, Man's anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Somehow I'd missed that for a long time. (laughs) The verse challenged my whole way of thinking. Actually, it exposed my faulty thinking. I realized that I had secretly harbored ideas about my anger which were absolutely wrong. I had thought that my anger was sometimes a legitimate and righteous way of responding to injustice, a way of alerting everyone around me that something unfair had happened. I had thought that my anger could actually straighten out what I perceived to be the foolishness or wrongheadedness of the people around me. I had thought that my angry outbursts were ways of giving certain people in certain circumstances what they deserved. But God knew my heart, and when I was ready, He put that verse in front of me. And I underwent a metanoia, a change, a change of thinking about the whole thing, and realized that my anger had been almost exclusively destructive for my whole life. It was, a re- it was that kind of repentance that saved me from my anger. Repentance is, 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 is a big thing and it's a small thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a one-time thing and it's an ongoing thing. We turn to Christ in the ultimate of repentance when Jesus says, repent and be, and be baptized and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and those kind of things. But there's also an ongoing, it's an ongoing thing, this kind of repentance. We're constantly Having to adjust, And that's what this passage is about, where Paul would speak into people's lives and they'd make adjustments or sometimes not. But Paul talks about the fruit of godly sorrow and repentance in the lives of the Corinthians. Their response to Paul's teaching made room for change. It produced earnestness to do God's will, eagerness to make things right, a deeper concern for Paul and for the cause of the gospel, a new kind of fruit. And when we step out in faith and respond to those kind of challenges and repent to what God uh, points out for us, our faith grows just like that. It's like a muscle, right? Our vision of God grows. I think of that. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is John chapter 11 where Jesus is away, Lazarus gets sick, and and the good friends Mary and Martha are at a loss of what to do. Lazarus dies, put him in the tomb, and then Jesus shows up and Mary and Martha, really, they kind of let Jesus have it. If you had been here, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They had seen him heal others. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Legitimate sort of thing. And Jesus calmly responds, trust me, trust me. I know I, I, I'm, I'm in charge of, the, of life. I'm in the resurrection and the life. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then he, makes them, then he asks them for one more step of faith, right? Open up the tomb. Scary, creepy, stinky. They take the step of faith. And when Lazarus walks out, Jesus suddenly is a lot more than a healer for them. It's a whole different ballgame now. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy can do that? And their vision of God is much bigger. Their ability to trust God is much bigger. The next time around when they're faced with challenges and they don't understand how God's handling them, they're, still, they're going to be able to be calmer and more positive and more hopeful because they've seen him pull somebody out of the grave. Their vision of God is much bigger. And when we take those steps of faith and respond with teachable spirits, then our vision for God gets bigger. Our ability to trust him increases. And in a real way, that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. Time and again, Paul has told us of the ways he found himself to be inadequate, weak, pushed beyond his abilities. But we never see Paul seeking excuses or casting blame. I've been reading through Jerry Sitzer's book called The Grace Revealed, and just this week he just hit this right on the head. He says, It is not Paul's admission of weakness that strikes me as unusual, Who hasn't felt his weakness at some point in life? It is his response to it that is so radical. Far from fighting or excusing it, he simply accepts it as normal and turns to God. That's the characteristic of godly sorrow that he's talking about here. It's a simple recognition, a non-defensive recognition of our weakness, of our failure, of our sin, and a moving forward into God's strength and grace and enablement. It's God. See, the, the whole thing is pointed at God's character in us. That's the great, that's sort of the, the pearl of great price, the great treasure in the field. That, everything, is, that's worth everything. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, this is, I'm seeing an area here where I think you need some work, why would I not want to give it up if giving it up gets me this character of Christ? It's worth everything. Paul says on a number of occasions, I count everything a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And we, maybe our problem is that we just don't appreciate how beautiful that is, but it's a marvelous, it's the most wonderful thing there is. So f- getting these things out of our lives is a lot less of a big deal when we realize, boy, it is absolutely worth it. That's why Paul can say what he does at the very end of the chapter. I, ho- I don't know if you noticed how, it, when I, this, the verse, verse 16, just really struck me. He ends the passage with, I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. I'm sorry, I don't have complete confidence in anybody. And hasn't this letter been about how we're not adequate? How can he say that he has complete confidence in the Corinthians when there had been this rupture of relationship problems all the way? He, he knows the sin that invades that, that body of believers. How can he say that? But I think the key is really what he's been building, this argument he's has been you know, building all along. Paul had lovingly approached the Corinthians with ways they'd been straying from God's word and God's way, and they had been teachable. They had responded with godly sorrow. They had allowed God to change them, to redirect them. And this is where the richness of Christian fellowship comes in that the world can really know nothing about. Okay. When each of us, when you and I humbly accept our inadequacy, our weakness, when we humbly relinquish to that, that, the, the sin that's exposed to us and, and admit it and don't fight it, don't become defensive about it, don't try to cast blame, try, don't try to explain it away, when each of us becomes comfortable as jars of clay, then we can know that if something goes wrong, and we're willing to course correct, willing to be brought back on course. We, we're, we're just cracked pots. Not crack pots. Cracked pots. Okay? And, and then when we... That's how, I can have you, how you can have confidence in me and I can have confidence in you that, yeah, things are going to go wrong, but we're in it with Christ to, to develop our character and to bring His kingdom to bear on our lives, and that's the good thing we're going for, and that when it's shown to us we'll throw away all this other stuff that entangles us and hinders us. Then we can have confidence. Not that we'll be flawless but that we're changeable, that we can get put each other back on track. We can be used by God to get everyone back on the way it is because it's worth it, because that challenge is worth it. And that's what body life is all about. That is what church is all about. That's why we're here for each other, to see God work out His goodness and redemptive purposes. I'd like to call the ushers forward. We're going to share communion today, and I'm going to tell you the rest of Paul Wiley's story here, but... But this is what we're about with respect to celebrating communion. It's, it's that kind of sharing of brokenness among us, of, of, of that brokenness, but God's offering His redemption in that whole thing. Paul Wiley, when we last left him, he said, This is live and I've just blown it. He's, he's down with his rear end on the ice in the Olympics. I have four minutes left and one important choice to make, he writes. Either skate through the rest of the program believing that something constructive will come of the mishap, concentrating and performing to the end, or continue to dwell on the fall and its consequences, inviting more mistakes caused by a negative frame of mind. A scripture flashes through my mind that helps me with my decision. The righteous shall fall, but (laughs) but they shall not be utterly cast down. Talk about timely. I suddenly grasp God's perspective. He will use our successes and our failures to teach us about ourselves and to show the world His glory. I move on, accepting a new role. I admit my imperfection perfection, and decide to skate hardly unto the Lord. He was out of the medal contention in the 88 Olympics. Everyone said, you're done. You'll be too old by the next Olympics. Give it up. Except for two or three people that spoke into his life and convinced him to try again. Trained intensely for four more years, Went to the Olympics in Albertville in 1992. He got a silver medal. The last paragraph of his essay says this When I look back at that moment, it always amazes me to think that the omnipotent God, the creator of galaxies light years away, will give us his strength and grace to help us in all of our struggles, in our relationships, in our careers, and even in the things that seem insignificant to others. He sees our hearts, he wants us to acknowledge our need. And rely on his help, all we need to do is ask to do is ask and rise as he lifts us. Let's pray. Father, may we make room for the people you put into our lives to receive the admonishments that we need, and to share and speak into the lives that we can bring along. Because that's the way we improve. That's the way we grow. That's the way we take on Your character is when we rub shoulders with those who are walking with You, when Your Spirit speaks to them and then speaks to us. And Lord, as we celebrate communion here today, I pray that would give us a fresh vision and a fresh commitment to each other and to You such that that life comes about and then we can receive not only Your comfort but Your strength as we repent with godly sorrow and get a fresh appetite for doing things your way. pray in Jesus' name. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul has been discussing how broken we are and for us to be honest and okay with that as we take it to the Lord because there's a place to take it because he was broken to receive our brokenness. And as it says in another place in chapter 5, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's remember that as we take the body today, take the bread today, that we are in this together under God's beautiful shepherding and enablement. Let's take the bread. And we'll hold the cup and share it together as well.